Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. What do you want to chat about that's coming up? Uh, we got quite a few things starting up again. There's an EMR course right now. It's our first one that we've run with Pulse Point. Boot camps will be starting back up in January. I think we have the most boot camps on the books than we've ever had for 2023. We have an ICE course, February 17th and 19th. All of our volunteer boot camps are starting up again as well. We've got quite a few of those on the go. Hazmat Technician course, March 12th to 16th. We're doing our first two-day IMS 200 course. That'll be March 21st and 22nd. And then just a ton of stuff in the spring, but should be good to start off the new year. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 59 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Dark, smoking, fast-paced, gritty, sweaty, rebellious, energetic, purpose-driven, evolving, anti-establishment, subculture, do-it-yourself, loud, tattooed, opinionated, non-conforming, salty, chaotic, unpredictable, outside the box, and unapologetically fun. Firefighting is punk rock as fuck. So is standing up for your rights and the rights of others, critical thinking, questioning the herd mentality, and speaking your mind and expressing yourself. A lot of us have always been punk and didn't know it. We just happen to wear a uniform, or parts of one, sometimes. My guest this episode is a conveyor of words and a mover of emotions. Someone who knows at his core that you often have to disrupt to change awareness and bring things back together better. He's a poet, musician, academic, and a partner and father. He also happens to hold down a pretty rad job. Welcome to Kevin Burke. Start off by uh, where you grew up. I originally grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, Tinley Park, Illinois, to be specific. Pretty much was there until college and then college, I went to University of Iowa. So I was in Iowa City during class and then coming back home for uh, summers and winters to work. When you responded to the questions I sent you, you said the second one's a bit loaded, but let's hit the ground running. (laughs) Sure. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about the structure and dynamic of your family growing up. It was interesting. I I think I mentioned this in the comment and I'm also like mildly self-conscious because I accidentally mentioned to my parents that I would be doing this. And so now they're going to be looking for it. So... (laughs) I was back home in October for, uh, it was like a one week immersion thing for school. So I actually had to be there in person while visiting. My sister and I were just talking, reminiscing, remembering stuff like you do. We were just talking about that exact question of like our family dynamic and, and all of that. Yeah, we realized like our situation was not as normal as we thought it was. Like when you're a kid, you're like, oh, that's just, that's normal frame of reference that you have. Man, I meant to check with her too about what ages we were. I want to say it was like third grade for me and so that would have been maybe early junior high for her because she's like three years older than me but yeah our mom got pretty sick she had an aqueduct in her brain so you have aqueducts going in your brain they manage out the pressure of the csf and all the stuff floating around your brain one of them collapsed and so pressure was building up and it presented in really weird symptomatic ways at first where they weren't sure what it was and then they finally got an mri and i guess there was a point where there was so much pressure on her brain actually you couldn't see a lot of the wrinkles on the brain anymore so they had to put in 
But Shunt, they put that in, and I guess the if I remember correctly, the first one that they put in was the wrong size. And so the pressure was weird and dysregulated again. And then when they put the correct size in, that one then had a staph infection, which then obviously went to her brain and, and everything else. And like at that time, you know, I was young enough to know, oh, my mom's sick. I'm spending all this time. My sister and I are both spending time bouncing around between friends' houses and aunts and uncles' houses. Both of my parents come from huge families of nine kids. So a lot of aunts and uncles to go around. At the time, thinking back on it, I don't remember the gravity of the situation. And I know there was a point where we went to visit my mom in the hospital. And I was told this later that like that was kind of a we don't know if she's going to make it type thing type visit. And I didn't know at the time. I just knew everybody seemed quiet and upset, but like <laughs> trying to smile like you do around kids. But yeah, she she got better. They the staph infection ended up clearing up. But there was definitely like like looking back on that, and this is sort of a product of therapy, reevaluating where your habits come from and family stuff and all that. And we can talk about ACEs and all that stuff if you want to go way down the rabbit hole. But because I do know like the ACEs list, it updates that where if you had a sick family member, that counts if it was for X amount of time or whatever. But either way, looking at how that affected dynamics moving forward, that still affected things because yeah, my mom was out of the woods, but still had lingering side effects. And she started suffering panic attacks. And there was a lot of, didn't know this at the time, but in hindsight, emotional trauma on her own part. I mean, that's near-death experience. And so that kind of changed the dynamics. And a lot of it was, we don't want to upset mom. And my dad was doing his thing of working a lot and trying to take care of us, which was just sort of a continuation of like, we're at aunts and uncles because he's at the hospital with her, but he'd bop in to check in on us and it was it kind of just made for a weird dynamic moving forward to where I feel like as a family I can't speak for my parents but looking back it seemed like maybe they were trying to like oh move past this let's have things be normal but it's like that changes things you know what I mean and not not in a bad way not in a good way and I'm not knocking my parents and I'm not just saying that because they're probably going to listen to this no, it's just your family <laughs> it's just, just your family experience this is what happened and looking back on it too it's like Credit where credit's due, my parents were great. I mean, they did what any parents can do. And me as a new parent hope I'm doing, which is just you do the best you can with what you have. And what they had was a lot of circumstances to overcome at the beginning on top of like dealing with me as a kid because I was ADHD as hell and still am. It was not long after all my mom's medical stuff. It was like a few years after that, I think, that I was diagnosed with ADHD. And then they were kind of sorting all that out at the same time. So I think they did a good job as good as anybody can do. I'm very grateful for that. And and like I said, they were together through all that. And then I guess as far as, I mean, they got divorced eight years ago now, which is its own, own whole thing. But yeah. And your sister and you were super close, you said? Yeah, man. We used to fight like it was our job growing up. And again, this kind of comes back to the dynamic I was talking about. And this is stuff that her and I have hashed out a bunch of times. Like at the time, because of the age that she was at and the age that I was at, She's at the age where she's old enough to babysit, and I was at the age where I still needed some supervision. But when we were bouncing around aunts and uncles and friends' house, she was sort of tasked with taking care of me. And I guess early on in our lives, there was some resentment there around that, around like me need, need, being the one that needed to be taken care of and her being the one that had this extra responsibility put on her. But again, both of us go to therapy. We've, <laughs> we've sorted this out, become aware of it, and moved on from there. But yeah, pretty much like, like I said, that we fought a lot. And then it was when she went away to college that we, we start missing each other and we start talking more. And ever since then, we've been super duper close. She's probably the one like direct family member I talk to on a pretty regular basis. Awesome. Just the one sister? 
Yeah, just the one sister, one older sister, and then and then me. So my parents broke the <laughs> broke the cycle of yeah. nine kids. Yeah. <laughs> And what was your school experience like? You mentioned ADHD, so you've actually been diagnosed with that. And so when did you discover that and how did it affect your school? So I was pretty young. I could be messing up some of the timeline of this just because of how young I was. But I want to say it like, I can't remember if it, it was like right around the same time that my mom was sick. It might have been right before or right after. But I was a good student. Like it was one of those that could tell that I was smart and I'd get good grades. But it was just, I was really bad at sitting still more so than other kids. I distinctly remember this. This is like one of those early memories. And this had to be like only like first or second grade because I remember what school it was at. And I remember being very small. (laughs) But they had on the wall, there's always like, oh, here's the alphabet and here's shapes with their names. Here's that. And the teacher was reading some story. And I just remember having this thought of like, oh, the story is interesting. But you know what? I'm going to figure out what these shapes are because we're learning shapes. I'm going to try to get ahead. And then I got in trouble for not paying attention to the story. So it was Things like that all the time. And what's interesting as far as the symptoms of it go, like I, having been on medication for a while and then gone off for a while and then kind of gotten back on recently, the symptoms are almost more apparent as an adult as opposed to just like the normal kid. Oh, it's just a hyperactive kid. It's like, no, it wasn't that. And I do remember when I got diagnosed too, they did all the tests, including the one where they put the electrodes on your head. Because if there's the activity in the frontal lobe, if it's in the what is it, executive function area, if it's a little bit slower, like 80% of people that have ADHD have that marker on them. And I remember having that actually, because they did the little, remember there was the electrodes on the head test and then pushing a button and all that stuff, which is like, as a kid, I just thought it was fun. It's like, oh, this is like sci-fi movie stuff. Like an electroencephalogram? Was that like a? Yes, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. I kept wanting to say fMRI, but I'm like, no, those weren't really a thing yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah the electroencephalogram, that's the one. Awesome. And you were involved in other stuff in school, though, so that ADHD didn't sort of isolate you or alienate you. you. You went the other way and got fully involved? Yeah, so I definitely got fully involved. I've always definitely been a weird kid. I think I lucked out in making weird friends early. Growing up was kind of neat, too. Our block, it was very old school, like everybody on the block knew each other. And because the neighborhood was kind of newer when we were growing up, it was a lot of what it actually turned out to be is, if I'm remembering this right, it was a lot of families that lived somewhere kind of south side Chicago-ish and then came to the suburbs. Like my dad grew up on the south side and then came to the suburbs. Because of that, I think there was that old school mentality of like everybody knew everybody and the kids would be running around on the block because all the backyards backed up to each other. So we had like free reign of there and parents just kind of kept tabs on you. But yeah, like friends with a kid that lived at the block that also had ADHD and and I forgot another learning disability. It might have been dyslexia or something offhand. But we kind of clicked and then until like when we got a little older and kind of went different ways. But I think I just lucked out (laughs) meeting other weird kids and also just getting fully involved because like early in school was weird to where I tested well enough to be in the gifted programs. But they were like, oh, that's maybe too much work because this learning disability that you have. And I was kind of a, this weird mindset of like, <laughs> I guess being driven by as much spite as a kid can have of like, I'll prove you wrong. And so, yeah, I did all the honors classes and got super involved and I never really like let off the throttle. <laughs> I, I do too much stuff now. But yeah, all through school, I've always been honors classes, even college, I double majored and track, cross country, roller hockey and band. And then in high school, later in high school, because I'd hurt my knee. And so I took like cross country season off, but then got really into theater and doing all that. So yeah, very involved. 
And we'll get into your punk rock mentality, but it seems like it was always there early on, even as a kid. But instead of like giving the finger to the the system academically, you're like, screw you guys, I'll show you I could do it just as well or better than any of you. Pretty much, yeah. It's it's pretty much people saying like, oh, I don't know if you can do this. Me being like, no, no, I, I'm, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I'm going to do a bunch of other crap too and do it as well as I can. It's <laughs> awesome. And then what about college? How was that a little bit different? It was a lot different. So for a bunch of reasons. So I was on medication all through high school and then going to college, I decided to get off of it. Partly just because I was like, I'm going to try this without it, which kind of made things definitely messier at first as far as just organization and <laughs> like hyper procrastinating to where it's like, all right, I got two papers due in a month. I'll be good. And then the night before I'm blasting out both of them and just drinking from the pot of coffee and stuff. That didn't help things, but I kind of got into a groove and kind of got that settled. What also didn't help too, and I know I mentioned this in there and we'll just, we'll dive head first. I've talked enough about this. Other people get more uncomfortable about it than I do, but whatever at this point. <laughs> so my freshman year, the end of first semester, so in the winter, it was like right before finals, I was assaulted by my RA. And I guess technically it was assault with sexual intent because, I mean, lucky for me, it still obviously is not a good thing, but lucky for me, there was no sexual contact, but that was very much the... The driving force of the motive. It's, it's Yes, it very much seemed like it, and it very much was that. It kind of sent me for a loop, but like looking back on it, and it's funny that you brought up the kind of punk rock mentality, because for me at that time, going to college was a little tricky too, because there was big arguments about what I was going to major in and, and all that kind of stuff, just because money being tight and tuition and, and all that kind of stuff. Because growing up, we didn't have, I don't remember ever wanting for anything, but we didn't have a ton of money. And my dad went to back to college when my sister and I were in high school. And it was when he did that and then got more onto the like office job side of things that he started making more money. And I remember it was so weird because I went away to college and every time I came back, I'd be helping him redo another room in the house and like lay out more flooring and putting in wood floor. And I was like, where are we getting the money for this? He's like, don't worry about it. And eventually I came back and all the flooring had been redone and they added a little bit more house. And I was just like, you did this just so I could put more flooring in, I feel like. <laughs> so there was sort of like arguments and definitely fights going down before college as far as what I was going to major in. Because obviously your parents want you to have the best chance at life and want you to major in more practical things. But I was hell-bent on going into the arts, wanting to major in that. The The compromise was I would double major <laughs> and go to uh, University of Iowa because I got some small academic scholarships from them. But I ended up double majoring in creative writing, English major with creative writing emphasis, and then film major with a production emphasis. I was very ready to be out of the house on my own, away from the earliest authority figures, which is your parents. And then I find myself living in the dorms where like our RA lived like two doors down, seemed like a pretty good dude, but turned out to not be. I feel like that sort of switched something in my head. And that's something in poetry that was I then later wrote about it because I've always been writing ever since ever since high school. You could see that switch happen to where it was like, oh, well, this authority figure, this person that represents like this thing that I was like, I'm going to be good at this. You know, I'm going to be good at school screw y'all saying I can't do it, blah, blah, blah. That authority like very much betrays your trust, right? And then so I, I felt like it just switched something into my head to where I was like, man, like it just makes you then question a lot of other authority. And like, keep in mind too, this is what, 2005. And so my freshman year of high school was 9-11. And so like already by that point, I started reading more into politics and 
and that kind of thing and had a lot of questioning of what was going on and why did this happen, that kind of stuff. And so it just really felt like a very crystallizing moment as far as like pushing back against authority in other ways and just like, well, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want. There was definitely that urge to push back against that as well. I already was like listening to some punk and some metal, but I just like leaned full tilt into it. And it was like not long after that whole instance that I had a mohawk and was dressing how I wanted to dress and and started making more music and and kind of went full tilt into punk as opposed to like I'm just the one sort of normal looking guy that hangs out with all the punk kids. It just went full on that. Obviously, that's something that will change the track of things a bit. You had a lot of irons in the fire, like you said, though. You were working at a scaffold yard and then you're, well, two jobs and you said you were part of an improv group and you're making a TV show with your friends, you're playing in a band. Like That's a lot at once, but cover those angles for me. Yeah, this is all in college. So whenever I was home for summers and winters, I was working. It started as an insulation warehouse for like the first summer that I was back. Well, the first summer before I left, it started with me working in a power plant in Joliet. And I worked there for a little bit, basically just cleaning up after the insulators. But then after that, the next winter back, I was in a scaffold warehouse or in a uh, insulation warehouse. And then the same company took me and one of the other guys from there. And then they had us set up a scaffold yard. So for the remaining like three years or so, every summer and winter, I'd be back that first time building the yard and then just working there whenever I was home. And then when I was at school, I was working at coffee shop, working as the AV guy, one of the AV guys for a student video productions, which is the name of the group. And through that, I was also making at the time the only like narrative based TV show on there that I was both writing, helping write and starring in. <laughs> and then my buddy was doing the brunt of the writing and directing it. Yeah, I was doing that. I was in a band and an improv group, and I think that covers everything. I feel like I'm missing a job in there somewhere, but yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot, and and double majoring the whole time. So, and I do think, like in hindsight, looking back at that as well, I think that was my way of not dealing with what had happened freshman year, because like I didn't go to therapy after that. I think I went to, like, the university had me go to an appointment with one of the student body therapists or whatever. And like, what's funny too is like, that was my first experience with like one-on-one therapy. And I didn't know this at the time, but it was like, he was not a good therapist. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically I went in there and I was like, yeah, I think I'm good. And he's like, okay. And like, that was the appointment basically. And so I think that that was me not, that was how I would deal with it is just not dealing with it. And oh, I'm going to throw myself into all this other stuff. So, because if I slow down, that's when I think about everything that's going on. You mentioned drinking a lot at that time and chewing up caffeine and, and that's, I guess this other stuff was was avoidance. So how did it not spiral into the negative really hard? How did you pull out of that? I think it just took a long time because I was definitely drinking too much in college from time to time. And as far as the caffeine, yeah, it was like I'd take no dose to stay up all night and finish papers and I worked at a coffee shop, so it's easy access to coffee and caffeine. Luckily, I stuck to the two legal things coming out of college then came back home and the dynamic at home was kind of weird it's one of those I'm still kind of piecing together but I knew I, I didn't want to stay there and felt very stifled being at home and misunderstood uh, right. it's the angst of adolescence yeah yeah the angst of just turned 20 or 21 or whatever and on top of that I'm not dealing with this trauma that's only three year three or four years old and I end up moving to Austin which this has been great for my generation. We keep lining up on all these awful things. I had 
9-11 at the beginning of high school and I left college right when the U.S. economy tanked. And so there was like no jobs anywhere. <laughs> but I moved to Austin uh, with a handful of those friends from college, like a chunk of us, basically a chunk of us went to LA and a chunk of us went to Austin because Austin was like the place to go to at the time for independent film work. And actually the economy hadn't hit there as hard yet. It eventually caught up because I eventually got laid off from, I was working for a uh, safe light in a windshield warehouse for a bit and got laid off from there when things finally caught up. But that lined up with me getting a job at these production studios down there. But anyway, point was I was doing all that. And again, no, real structure in my life, still not taking meds, but still having those like really messed up sleep patterns from college, not sleeping, drinking, doing the kind of thing where it's like, oh, I shouldn't drink. So I take a few days off. And then when you do go back to it, you hit it really hard and you make some regrettable phone calls and stupid crap like that. The good thing is when I got to Austin, there was that outlet of the poetry scene, which I don't remember if I talked about that a lot in my answers. I remember I was trying to cover the personal stuff because the poetry stuff could have been a whole other like three pages. Yeah, you mentioned it and then maybe you can tie in the TV show, but maybe just dive in a bit deeper on the acting, how that started, the poetry scene, how you were getting involved in the arts in general. I'd have to give most of the credit to two teachers back in high school. So it was Vaz and Levi, although both of their last names are McCulloch now, but her last name was Vizana. We called her Vaz, but she was English teacher and one of the drama teachers. And one of the other drama teachers was Levi. And it was like, not like the first time I'd been on stage acting. Cause I did like stuff through our library, you know, friend got me to go to a audition thing, tried it out. Hey, it's kind of fun to goof around on stage, that kind of thing. And actually it started improv all the way back then as well. They put together this show based on Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, which is the show out of Chicago that the Neo-Futurists put on. And it's all written by the cast. It's all performed by the cast. It's really cool when you, they, I think they're still doing it, when you show up, they buy the audience pizza, which is great in small black box theater, so they can do that. It just takes like two, three pizzas. But there's this clothesline that has numbers one through like 100 on it. And when you show up, you're given a little card and it has numbers one through 100. Next to each number is a different title of a different sketch, essentially. And they're like, all right, we're going to start the timer on the show. The show's exactly, I forget, I think it's like an hour and a half long. And they start the timer and then you just yell out what number you want to hear. And whatever they hear first, they do that. And so they don't know what the order of the show is going to be. You don't know. They never get through the whole list. But like the sketches are wild because it's anything from like short comedy sketches, like kind of traditional thing to like dramatic monologue to like, God, there was this one that was hysterical. It was, I forget what, I think it's a song, Endless Love, you know, that duet. And it starts, the music comes up, the whole theater's, and it's again, small black box theater, completely dark. And then the male vocalist comes in and a spotlight shows up on this gigantic plush banana sitting in a chair. And then when the female vocal comes in, the spotlight goes on. I forget what stuffed animal they had for that, but it was just that back and forth for like two minutes. And then that was number 45 or whatever. So they took that format, that idea of performed by, written by the cast, and then they adapted it for high school, which nobody had really done that. And we ended up calling it Two Chairs and the Table because that was the only set that we had. That's part of the other thing the neo-futurists do is there's not really, like the only set they have is what's in the room. We didn't do the yelling out numbers and that whole thing, but we did do all written by, written by and performed by, and then you kind of put them in this rough order. And I had been writing, I knew I liked writing. Whenever we got essay assignments, I was the weirdo that like enjoyed writing it. And I always tried to write funny stuff, which would usually crack the teachers up. Easy A if you can get somebody to laugh, especially if it's like well-written. You're actually doing the assignment, but fitting jokes in there. But yeah, so we did this show and I think because of everything going on, like I had an uncle that just died around then. 
it was junior year. So you're applying to colleges, you have your future on your mind, you have all this other stuff on your mind. And really, I think I was figuring out stuff with ADHD meds again. And so I ended up writing about all that. I wrote a whole sketch on having ADHD and about my uncle and, and a few other things. And I still did some funny stuff, but I mainly was acting in other people's funny stuff just because I've always been the guy that does like impressions and voices, which it's partly why I like Dungeons and Dragons so much now, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> any any excuse to do a silly voice, I'm there. Like I said, I'd always been writing. I remember writing short stories and stuff when I was in like grade school, but like that was the first time to really figure out my voice in writing, which if anybody listening has been through a writing class, when you talk about new writers, that's like often the hardest thing to do is finding your, you have to figure out how to write and then figure out how to write in your own voice is a later step. But I feel like that was really that crystallizing moment for me of like understanding how I talk, how I think, and then getting that on a page for other people to understand. And so doing that show was huge moment for me in hindsight. And I'm still so grateful to those two teachers. I had a lot of awesome teachers, but they obviously like those two stand out a lot. And so fast forward, been writing that whole time. When I was going for creative writing in college, I was mainly interested in short fiction. I actually didn't like poetry. I liked poetry all through high school. Walt Whitman, I liked E.E. E. Cummings. I liked how he break words up and mess around with all the on the page and stuff. I don't know if you know the poem Grasshopper, but awesome, awesome stuff. Looks like the word is jumping around like a grasshopper. But when I got to college, I remember running into some people that were into poetry, but really it was these two dudes that lived on my dorm floor that liked to eat a bunch of mushrooms and then write down whatever they were thinking about and then like pass it off as like really deep. And I remember just being annoyed by that, partly too because there was these girls that also lived in another part of the dorm that were like really into it and like, oh, these guys are so, and I remember being like, what the, f what are you talking about? It's like two dudes in a drug rug that clearly haven't showered and like, three weeks that's not deep that's just whatever yeah. anyway it's <laughs> so like poetry but yeah posters. i just I, yeah and and it would just come off as very very pretentious you know what i mean and very like oh if you don't get it you don't get it and and most of the exposure i had to poetry through academia was like that to where it's like oh if you don't get why this is deep you know but and there's a lot of and granted, this is a much larger discussion to have around literature and stuff, but there's like a lot of like internal gatekeeping that would go on in academia. And that was sort of starting to shift because this is what early 2000s. So like Deaf Poetry Jam sort of started becoming a thing. And I think Right Bloody started around then sometime. All that was kind of going on and I wasn't super into poetry, but then it was like my last semester. I had already done all the creative writing courses, the short fiction courses I could do. And I eventually was like, you know, screw it. I'll I'll give this poetry thing a whirl, partly because at the time I was already way into music and into music forever. Since like junior high, I was listening to like the heaviest metal <laughs> that kids that age should not listen to in hindsight. Listen to all that in junior high. And then by the time college rolls around, I'm much more into the punk scene, listening a little bit of everything. But I got into much more into hip hop at the time, especially because there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in alternative hip hop and underground hip hop. And a lot of the artists in that arena prior to recording hip-hop albums were spoken word artists and i didn't know what the heck that meant and so i googled it <laughs> and i got on youtube and found deaf poetry jam found a bunch of these youtube videos of poets from back then that were doing this like saul williams is the biggest name around that time and hip-hop artists like sage francis and i'm trying to remember some of the guys i saw in deaf poetry jam i can't remember the names offhand are you a henry rollins fan I am. At that time, I didn't know about a lot of his spoken stuff as much. At that time, that I got into 
more so post-college. And actually, I got to see him a couple of years, like right before the pandemic, we got to see him, which was really cool. That man is a force on stage. He talked the whole time, never took a sip of water, never stopped. He even pointed it out. And it was like the audience collectively realized like, oh, shit, he hasn't. I've been talking at a high rate of speed with no water. How many <laughs> clap push-ups can I do to solve this? I was getting into a lot of that stuff. And it's a lot more of the spoken word that poetry that's meant to be performed. So you have artists like Saul Williams, who Saul Williams and Sage Francis, who in their poetry would present it very rhythmically. Like you can hear, it wouldn't necessarily be on beat like rap, but there's they're playing with the rhythm of the words, kind of what I just did there. That really influenced the early writing at the time. And so I see all this stuff last semester of college. I'm like, screw it, I'm going to try poetry out. I found an avenue of poetry that I like and that isn't overly pretentious or inaccessible for the sake of being inaccessible, which always drove me nuts. I'm a very big believer in art as utility. So whatever you're making, it should be doing something, should have some kind of purpose. And like, what's the purpose if it's so esoteric that like only you get it? But got into that and really started writing. And then kind of, again, like I'd already kind of found my writing voice, but found a way to apply that to a new writing medium. And then so when I showed up in Austin, I was like, I wonder if they have a spoken word and slam scene, not knowing that like a year or two prior, they were like one of the top teams competing nationally in competitive spoken word. And so it was a really vibrant scene, made a lot of my earliest friends there. It was a really vibrant scene, met a lot of my like first friends in Austin. I'm still friends with there. And it really clicked like the first time I, I did it. So just for definitions, explanation, you have spoken word poetry, which is just poetry that's meant to be performed. When you're doing that in a competitive space, that's what slam poetry is. I showed it to my first slam. I was like, screw it. I have like two poems. Really, I only have one that's good, but I have this other one. Competed in the first round. The way they do it, it's 12 poets in the first round. Top six go the next round, and the top three go the final round. I mean, I made it out of the top six, which I didn't know this at the time. That normally doesn't happen when you do it your first time. So I made it to there. I actually knocked a guy out of the second round or from getting into the second round that was on the Nationals team a year or two prior, I made it to the second round, and then the second poem I had was absolute trash. In my own opinion, my first poem was trash, too, <laughs> compared to stuff I write now. But So I got knocked out second round, but ended up becoming friends with that guy. It's my buddy Joe Marr, who, again, one of the first friends I made in Austin, him and Tova, who Tova, she later became one of my roommates. Yeah, just kind of really got involved in that scene, really found a good voice, a good footing, a good community, and was going hard on that. And so I had that outlet from all the trauma and whatnot that I hadn't really dealt with. And I still had all these unhealthy habits going on and but was still maintaining. I, I always feel weird talking good about myself. And I have to remind myself <laughs> what my friends they said, which is humble don't mean stupid. So like, I know that I'm smart. I don't brag about it. But humble don't mean stupid. I know, I know I'm smart. And I think like that if I was dumber, I feel like I would have hit a brick wall a lot sooner. But because I'm fairly smart. I was able to keep things juggling, even though it was completely unhealthy. You're very agile and adaptable. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that ultimately worked against me, kind of, <laughs> because it just prolonged when I was dealing with stuff. So I was writing a lot, competing a lot. I was uh, Austin Slam Champ in 2011, and then a regional Slam Champ that year, and I won the Texas Grand Slam that year. And on the national team a handful of times in a row and then won the Grand Slam again, which nobody's won it twice. I'm only a guy with two, two belt buckles because you win a big old Texas belt buckle when you win that. So I, I will brag about that. I was doing all that and it really came to a head when I finally like, and this kind of gets back to firefighting. I had always thought about firefighting. I had joked with college friends and friends growing up that like, 
it was the one job to me that wasn't like selling out because you're not trying to scam people. You're not trying to sell them shit they don't need. You're not trying to make anything no one's going to use. It's not for profit, which like appealed to my very lefty heart. It's, it's tied into old union stuff and blah, blah, blah. All, all, the, all the reasons. It's, it's whole super progressive labor movement history and all the social good things tied in with, with firefighting, right? And I've always said it's a great social leveler. Like when everyone's hurt or their house is on fire, it's the same for everybody. 100%. And it's, it's so cool within the job too that like your chief was in your position at some point as well. It's almost leveling with internally as well. But yeah, like, like you said, it's very pure. It's very, I'm here to help the community. And then once we're done, peace out. We'll see you later. You're, you're not getting a bill in the mail. You're not getting any of that stuff. We'll, we'll see you next time. Oh, you want to bring us cookies? Rad. Cool. Yeah. I'll take cookies, but we don't need them. <laughs> and so like I had joked about that being like the one legit job that I could get behind and having been into the Dropkick Murphys way back when and knowing that one of them was a firefighter too kind of helped as well. And then so fast forward to this would have been 2012, 2011, was kind of going back and forth. And the, the view I had of the fire service is that it was a very closed community, which it is in some ways, but like for whatever reason, I had it in my head that like people in the fire service wouldn't be into you being into things outside of it, which is like not the case at all because <laughs> I didn't know about side jobs and stuff, but whatever. And so the EMS department in Austin was hiring and I was like, oh, well, you need an EMT anyway to eventually do firefighting. Maybe I'll like just the medical end. Um, I just become with friends with a guy who's now one of my best friends, uh, Bill Moran, phenomenal poet. And he's also my bandmate now as well, which is why I have this fancy microphone. He was an EMT for a bit and it kind of told me about the job and the flexibility of it. And I was like, you know what, I'll give it a try. Went to EMT school, ended up working with Austin EMS for a little bit. But all within that, there was also a lot of personal turmoil going on. There was a relationship that I was in that ended not in a great way because I was not good at communicating <laughs> why I wanted to end it. And then... I forget how long after that, I then start dating someone who had been a friend prior, who was a classmate from when we both were in EMT school at uh, Austin Community College. But then that relationship like exploded in the worst ways. And it was like, it was basically two very unhealthy people in a relationship with each other that shouldn't have been. And it just, it, it fell apart. And that kind of added to these extra stressors because that relationship had become very isolating to where I just hadn't seen a lot of my friends and a few of them had moved out of Austin and like this friend that I had made through class was like the one of the few friends I had left and then we start dating and then break up and it's like oh well now I'm kind of alone so it was like that plus me still not dealing with ADHD or taking meds for it and I decided around then to go back on meds for it, but it was kind of too little too late because then things ended up not working out with the job. I wasn't meeting these like training requirements that I was supposed to and ended up leaving kind of on mutual terms. It was this, it was a weird situation. So I lost that job. And because I lost the job, I couldn't afford the apartment I was in. So in the process of moving, my car got broken into and it had all my stuff in it. And in the car was a briefcase that I'd gotten as a gift actually from that prior relationship. But it had a bunch of the hard copies of my writing in it and also my laptop. So in like one fell swoop, I lost a bunch of crap, but then also I didn't care about that so much. I lost five years worth of all of my writings. It's all the writing I had post-college and I had been trying to put that together as a book. So it's losing the job, losing the relationship, losing all the writing. That's really when things came to a head. Lost the job, relationship blew up, 
a lot of friends weren't around. I felt dis- disconnected from people and have the weird social anxiety where I think people don't want to see me anyway, even though I could just call them. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and then losing all the writing, it was just as a lot. It's just like a one, two, three punch, you know, and definitely hit a low point. I found myself at one point super depressed. Also, not only had I not been dealing with that prior trauma, I hadn't been dealing with like obvious signs of depression and major depressive disorder that I'd been kind of going in and out of. That again, I didn't realize that's what it was until much later. But yeah, I just reached a low point where I was suicidal and not doing great. And I just remember I was in my car and I had like kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to like somehow in my head. And this is something that I've tried to explain to people too, that like when you're suicidal, when you're like sincerely in that space, you feel that because some people are like, oh, it's so selfish. I can never do that. It's like what you got to understand is when you're in that space, you think that if I kill myself, that's actually less of a burden on all these people. I'm actually yes. doing them all a favor. Yes. Which is like so backwards. <laughs> when <laughs> it seems like the universe doesn't want you around anyways, you get that kind of feeling too, right? Yeah, it seems like, man, everything I'm doing just seems to be hurting people around me because like that relationship and that prior friendship imploded and then it made weird dynamics in other friendships because like, like <laughs> she was friends with or had become friends with the other girl I was dating prior to, it was, it was a mess. Like it, it just like so many aspects of my life, it seemed like I was just hurting people around me in some ways I was, but in my own head, it was much more exaggerated, much more. I am more of a burden on other people. I'm, I'm the guy that I have all this stuff and it's too much for them to deal with. But like in my head, I sort of like, I don't know how I made sense of this or the mental gymnastics I had to do or what kind of headspace you have to be in for that. But I had kind of decided, hey, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my little 93 Honda Accord and I'm going to wrap it around a tree or a telephone pole, something that'll probably kill me, but that'll be ambiguous enough to where if there were people that would be like hurt by me killing myself, they won't be. And ultimately, everybody will be better off because I won't be around. I think it's common for people not to see the culmination culminating. It's weird to think back on that moment. In my book, one of the poems is very much like, I don't know, I'm really proud of that poem. I've never read it out loud or performed it because it's like just a lot to throw at an audience and just a lot to read through out loud. But it's very much, I feel like I did a pretty good job of capturing that like crystallizing moment of what that feels like and how disjointed all of it is. And like there's this logic to it, except if you back up and look at it, it's like this doesn't make any sense. But in the moment, it makes sense. Yeah. Luckily, though... So I was in my car and I was doing, I don't know, like 70 in a residential area in the middle of the night, just kind of yeah. looking. Miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Sorry. forgot the country difference here. I was moving at 17 chair cheeseburgers per 45 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. The measurements here do not make any sense. Metrics make so much sense, but I... I won't use it because I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing some article where someone had referenced the size of something as like a half a giraffe. And it was like, well, which half? <laughs> yeah. What the hell does that mean? What? Exactly. Or, or uh, exactly. A, a hole as big as so many washing machines. Like, it's, why, why are you referencing this? <laughs> I saw a similar article to that where it's like somebody has about the size of two and a half dogs. And I was like, man, American <laughs> exceptionalism, my ass, because this stuff is bananas. All right. That makes no sense. <laughs> Sorry to draw you back in your car. I'm back in the car doing, I'm going ridiculous speed, like way too fast in a residential area, like fast enough to probably kill myself and picking out trees. And I was in that area because it's a neighborhood that I knew and there's big old trees. It's a smaller neighborhood in North Austin. And I eventually kind of like, I forgot if I noticed my phone ring 
first or if I pulled over first, but I just know eventually I was pulled over and looking at my phone and just, just stopping. And like the logic that I had put up in my head, I saw it fall apart in front of me just because I got a text from actually that former friend, now ex-girlfriend, whatever it's complicated status on Facebook situation that it was, just kind of texted me out of the blue. I had seen her earlier that day and I remember the interaction we had had was shitty and it just kind of was like me being like, yep, it'll be better if I'm not here. This person was upset last time we talked. Probably my fault. But just texting me saying like, hey, I'm worried about you. Like, are you okay? You didn't seem okay last time I saw you. And that really kind of luckily brought me back down to earth as far as not doing that, which I'm glad I didn't. To quote another poet, I'm glad I survived who I was to be who I am now. That whole thing then got me to try going to a therapist for the first time and like sincerely trying it and, and really started a very long road of unpacking stuff, <laughs> just say. So before we hurdle forward into and eventually getting to you writing the video poem that actually initially connected us, take me back then to your first exposure at the fire service. And you did mention a little bit, but I want you to tell me about your bartending grandmother and how that comes into play. There had been firefighters around like in our life, like both my parents grew up South Side Chicago. My mom came from a big Polish German Catholic family that moved out of the city and into the suburbs when my mom was in like high school. Whereas my dad's side was through and through South Side Chicago Irish and they like stayed all the way into the city until I think my dad got married and then he eventually moved out. And then even still then my grandma still lived, lived in the South Side in the like back of the yards area. A lot of my aunts and uncles still did. Eventually, most of them moved to like suburbs or still kind of nearby areas. But yeah, growing up, my grandma was a bartender at this little hole-in-the-wall bar pretty much till the day she died. She was a pretty cool grandma, just smoking Virginia Slims, drinking old-style, playing Game Boy. She really loved Tetris and the casino game. Those are the only two that she had on her Game Boy. And she tended bar. If you've ever been to a divey dive bar that's like been around for a while and seen little kids running around, I was one of those kids, essentially. I still remember too in, in literally T-ball and stuff for fundraisers, they have you sell these like, it's like a cardboard briefcase almost full of chocolate bars and you got to go around and sell them to raise money for your little league team. And I remember I'd always show up there with two cases and it'd be like during the day, 1 p.m., 2 p.m. And there's like three or four dudes that are there every day that are already drunk by this point. And I'd show up and my grandma would be like, oh, hey, you know, you know whatever. Hey, hey, this is my grandson. Buy his, buy his chocolates. Buy his effing chocolates. All this stuff. And these guys would throw down like 50 bucks and buy a whole case. And I'd be like sold out just like that. Again, hindsight looking back, not the most normal childhood. <laughs> I've had a lot of conversations with 50-year-old alcoholics when I was like eight <laughs> that I still vividly remember being very funny conversations. Because they're like trying to be goofy. In hindsight, it's kind of sad on, on their part, but whatever. It makes me think of the movie, uh, I think it's called Sweet Home Alabama. I think Reese Witherspoon's in it. And she goes back home to her small town and she's like, oh, you have a baby in a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we were ever, and we might have been babies in the bar. I don't think we were, but yeah. whatever. And either way. Same context, yeah. Yeah, and so because of where the bar was, I guess it was pretty close to one of the firehouses. And so I guess firefighters come through there, hang out and drink sometimes. When my grandma would have these parties at their house, because my, my dad's dad died when he was, gosh, I feel like he, whenever he told me the story, it was always when I was about your age. But he said when I was about your age for like 10 years. So I don't know exactly how old he was. So my grandpa on that side died before I was ever ever born or you know, before my dad was even married, you know, a glint in your father's eye or whatever they, whatever they say. But they would have these 
parties at their house because they had an above ground pool and decent sized backyard. My grandma would have these parties and because the family's already huge, like you have nine kids who then have significant others or spouses who then also have kids. So there's already like a gaggle of Burks descending on this place. Add that to like, because it's an old school neighborhood, everybody in the neighborhood knows each other. So it's a lot of neighborhood friends, a lot of family friends that have weird nicknames like the rat and pizza who was apparently the one Italian kid that grew up around all these Irish kids, so they <laughs> called him Pizza. I still don't know this man's real name. He is a real person. He's an electrician. <laughs> and all my cousins and my sister, when we talk about him, it's always Pizza. Like, I don't know his name. It'd be these huge parties, like all these people there. A lot of times the firefighters that, I don't know if they were the same ones from by the bar or if there's a station near her house. I was too young to know the logistics of parties at this time, but they bring the fire truck by come by the front of the station and then all the kids would go and play with the fire truck. And so there was definitely that around as a kid. And there's pictures of me from that time. Also, there's this one of me looking probably full of sugar, but exhausted because I've been swimming all day, all bug eyed inside a fire truck that was on the wall in our hallway growing up forever. But there was like that aspect there. And because again, Southside Irish neighborhood, there was a lot of family friends that were in the Chicago fire department and like I said, it was just, it was there. It was in the background and I was aware of it. I was aware of the gist of what the culture was and like what the job not was like, but kind of the stuff we talked about before. It's that very pure, hey, we show up, we help. And then we go back to the station and we hang out and train or whatever. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where it was back then. As far as when I finally got in, so the EMS route, working on a box, I didn't, didn't quite work out. But I was like, well, I have my EMT. You have to be an EMT to be a firefighter. This is the thing I wanted to try anyway. Screw it. I'm going to go full bore into this. And for me, too, at the time, this is after the low point. This is maybe a year or two after when I'm kind of coming back into things. It's 2014 is when I did my first academy, and I did it through Oak Hill Fire Department. It has their own academy, kind of like community colleges do, where you can get your certification or pay to play, as some people call it. I'm super biased because I still teach there, and I'm very involved with this academy. But I think it's one of the one of the best ones because it's just – it's such an emphasis on hands-on and there's a little bit of classroom but it felt a lot like college to where they were like here's the reading assignments we're not spoon feeding you anything we're going to be a little bit in here and we're doing all the hands-on stuff out there if you fail the test that's on you for not studying you know whereas a lot of times when you get into like a city department where like they're paying you to be there they have more invested in you they don't give you the answers to the test but there's much more of a focus on the academic to make sure that you don't fail out and they don't lose out on their money if that makes sense and so going through that it was all hands-on all the instructors, what's cool about it too is it's all guys that want to be there. A lot of them are just volunteering their time because they like teaching this stuff. And when I went through, it was primarily made up of guys that were Austin rescue guys, essentially. That was kind of my first exposure to the fire service was that, as far as being part of it, was that academy. And it was kind of tail end of that tumultuous time kind of lined up with the academy class. And I very much, it was like sort of the beginning of, of healing. So still going through it, but I had my shit together enough to be in the academy and really I kind of saw that academy as a chance to like redeem myself if that makes sense just because I had again putting a lot of blame on myself just saw it as my own fault that like everything fell apart and so going through it I really threw myself into it what helped at the time too is I just started dating Amanda who is now my partner in crime wife spouse whatever whatever word you want to use for it we use all of them Getaway driver, I think, is the one that comes up the most. We had just started dating, and both of us were obviously coming out of very, you know, I was coming out of a 
previous strenuous relationship. That's the friend, ex, whatever situation. And she was coming out of a, a really crappy relationship. We start dating and we're like, hey, you know, feel this out, see how it goes and kind of go from there. And we're very purposely not trying to go full bore right away like we both had had previous habits doing. I didn't know this at the time, but when I heard about Oak Hill Academy, I was like on the fence, like, oh, well, you know, applying to Austin and I don't want to go through Academy if I'm going to have to go through another one. You know, I'm in the application process. Luckily, it worked out because that application process for Austin got delayed like a year and a half. And so Amanda was the one that was like, no, you should do this. And what she didn't tell me at the time is she was like, no, if he does that, then we won't be able to see each other like every day. So we won't like go... <laughs> You know, all hard on the relationship like both of us had a tendency to do. And obviously it worked out because now we're all that. I start doing that and she was super supportive too. It was a really great study buddy, would help me with flashcards and all that stuff. But like like I said, I really wanted to like, I guess prove to myself or prove to whatever that I wasn't a total screw up and kind of wanted that redemption. And so I threw myself into it fully, man. I went hard on the PT end of it. The PT instructor is is Captain Jim Key, who was he's an AFD rescue captain forever. He's like in his 60s now and still does the combat challenge. I guess he's the only guy in his age category because they ran out of age categories. But he still has said one of the hardest things I've ever heard, which he, we're out there working out. And he worked out with all of us and would like put some of the 20-year-olds to shame. But he's out there. He would just go, we're all out here suffering, but I bet I can out-suffer you. And then just go back to running up the stairs or something. Amazing. I love it. Yeah, so like threw myself fully in the PT stuff. Obviously had that great motivation from that instructor. And then the academic end, yeah, I was by the end of it, this sort of has become like a folk legend in Oak Hill Academy because I had brought those flashcards back to then teach other classes. But I made like something like 2,000 flashcards and memorized all of them at one point. End up getting valedictorian in that class and class commander, which uh, I don't know how uh, your fire academy experience, but there's like sort of leadership roles that cadets get put in. And that was like the top one for that. But yeah, really threw myself into it, really did well. I mean, like I said, humble don't mean stupid. I did really well. Found a job not long after that, volunteered at one or two different places and started working part-time at Oak Hill. Ended up getting on full-time with Oak Hill it's like a little less than a year after that academy, which is pretty quick usually for something like that. But I was applying everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. That was kind of the beginning of it. And that academy was, it was just good. It was good for me in a lot of ways. It was good for building back my own confidence and knowing like, oh, hey, I can do this. I'm actually pretty good at it. Started working at Oak Hill full time, was there about a year and then got on with San Antonio because they called before Austin did. I applied to both. I didn't think I was going to get in San Antonio because they give a lot more bonus points for military than other fire departments do. And I don't have military experience prior. But yeah, I got into San Antonio. And like I said, they called first. By the time Austin called, I was almost done with San Antonio's academy. So. And you said that drill school was a lot different. It was very different. It was very different. And it's changed since. Because when we went through, it was, and I appreciate the department and appreciate the academy for doing this. When we went through, they actually asked a few of us for like input. During your probation, you'd have to go like, I forget offhand, it's like once a month, go back for some probie handbook drill thing at the academy. And it was during one of those, they asked a bunch of us, whichever ones of us ended up on C-shift because that's the shift I started on. There was a few of us that were fire prior to that. And they kind of asked us for feedback on the academy. And like a few of us were pretty honest. We were like, this academy is good for some stuff. I'm in like the best shape of my life. I can do a hundred burpees like it's nothing, but we didn't get a lot of hands-on time. For me, that just came from that experience of having so much hands-on time at Oak Hill and then showing up to San Antonio with this amazing facility and being like, oh, 
it's going to be great to train here. And then like I forced a door twice there, maybe. And it has since changed. They definitely, and that's not to, sounds like I'm talking a bunch of smack on it. It's not to talk smack on it. It's, they just had more of an emphasis on the discipline and physical aspect than they did on, and then obviously on the academic aspect. Like I said, that felt less of like a college course than Oak Hill did. It was much more like, we're going to spend more time in here to make sure y'all get through the, get through the class. It has since changed, like to their credit, they took that feedback and, I've been down to the academy a few times to help out with CIT training and a few other things. Or when we do rescue week where the rescue team shows up and shows the guys all the cool ninja rescue stuff that we do. The academy is very different and it's, there's much more of an emphasis on the hands-on. It seems like they found a really good balance of still doing the discipline paramilitary style, but getting the hands-on in there as opposed to like more CrossFit. It's more time working out in gear and doing hands-on drills than CrossFit for punitive stuff, if that makes sense. It's pretty cool. San Antonio's Academy is a cool facility. I, yeah, been to a few, and it's it's pretty rad. So I'm glad they're using it a lot more <laughs> than, than my 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 initial experience. But yeah, it was it was just very different, and the the culture in that department was a little bit different. But at the same time, too, and I know I mentioned this in the answers that I gave you, the I feel like the culture, generally speaking, in the country was in a weird spot also because I got into Oak Hill and was working there at like 2014, 2015. And then I started in San Antonio, January of 2016. For those listening who lived in a bunker around then, it was a pretty wild time and a <laughs> wild election here in the States. Yeah. And, and it was a bit of a culture shock in a lot of different ways on top of this added change in the tenor of political conversations. Things got that much more heated, that much more divisive us and them, that kind of thing. There was a lot less friendly discussion and more if you don't think this way, if you kind of vibe going on. And so it was a bit of a transition for sure. And given your academic background and your friends and the scene, the punk rock thing, the the poetry, you were into politics. This wasn't your first purview into like, it's so dramatic and eccentric and crazy that you're going to start getting into politics. You'd sort of been following it into it deep already. So you had feelings and ideas and thoughts in your own worldview that maybe that were really deeply embedded in part of your identity, which most people might not. So just, yeah, talk to me about that and about uh, fire culture and fitting in friends, confrontations. Let's dive into that. It was weird navigating these waters in San Antonio. So like I've been reading, like I said, freshman year, we started school a little late. And so 9-11 was one of like the first weeks of school. And of course, around that time, you're a kid, you're 12, 13, you're like, well, why this happen? And you get some answers from people and you have your parents and the president sort of saying, oh, they hated us for our freedom. That's why this happened. And then so you're like, well, okay, I'm going to do some more reading on this and blah, blah, blah. And then, then you learn about like the Cold War and the proxy war with where we basically, I mean, this is all declassified stuff. We basically funded the Taliban to fight the Russians and blah, 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 blah. And this is, you learn like the bigger picture, the complexity. Total side note, one of the things that frustrates me with political discussions is when people just kind of throw their hands up and go, it's like, well, the truth's in the middle. It's like, well, no, not always, but more often than not, it's the answer is always more complicated. Yes. Rarely is it one or the other. It's, it's more often than not much more complicated, much more gray, much more nuanced. Sure, there may be a correct answer, like a factual answer to something. Like you can't say, hey, the sky's green, somebody else says it's blue, and then somebody says it's somewhere in the middle. It's like, no, it's one of those two. But as far as when that enters the political arena, it's like, man, stuff gets very complex very fast. 
and from like a young age, and part of this is just growing up, I had my friend Casey. I very much looked up to him as a writer. He was a good writer, smart dude. Like I said, he was very prototypical, like punk kid who very, very smart, but his grades didn't show it because like if he didn't like a class, he just would sleep through it, but still managed to get B's or A's sleeping through it and got like a 32 on the ACT, even though he slept through. I think he just didn't do the math portion or something like I forget what the story was, but he didn't do a chunk of it because he was hung over that day and didn't feel like finishing it, but still got a crazy high score. He kind of got me onto political readings early on. So like I was already getting familiar with like Howard Zinn back then and, and reading into just a number of other st- like things around that time adjacent to that. And then obviously messages and music and blah, blah. So I've been reading like political stuff way over my head from like a very young age. I did take a slight break post-college because I remember having this crystallizing moment in a bar where I was talking to somebody about some far left stuff and they were, oh yeah, I think that way too. By the way, I'm an LSD right now. And I remember just being like, well, that doesn't help the conversation. And that's not a good look for like a chunk of political views that already get to bad rap sometimes. And so I remember after college telling myself like, I will get involved in politics. Because in in college too, I was very involved in a lot of activism, like anti-war stuff, LGBTQ rights, that kind of stuff at the time, which those were two big issues at the time with the Iraq war going on and the back and forth about gay marriage. I kind of told myself, like, I'm going to talk politics once I have my life together more, which is its own thing and playing into what's called respectability politics, but whatever, I digress. Point is, yes, that part, more so than a lot of other people, like politics, I mean, politics is always personal and the personal is always politics. I very much believe that as far as the way things, a lot of people like to say like, oh, whatever they're doing doesn't really affect me. It's like, but it does, and your apathy is its own political statement, whatever. But more so than a lot of other people that I know that those views and political leanings and all that stuff is very much a big part of my identity and very much a big part of how I move through the world. And so getting into San Antonio in 2016, like right after Trump was elected, was really weird and rowdy. Because regardless of how you feel about that guy, one thing that I even talking to guys I work with that are very much adamant Trump supporters that I'll even get them to admit is that like he became president and then the discourse very much changed. He kind of normalized abrasiveness. Yeah. Abrasiveness. That's better than dickhead, but whatever. Like he, (laughs) he kind of, he normalized that as like a show of strength. I feel like that sort of trickled down and into everyday political discourse to where it was like seen as from people you talk to on the street, I feel like just people got ruder about that stuff and got more emboldened to be like much more of a jerk about things because, hey, this guy that I voted for that I got in there that I put in there because I was mad about stuff like, hell, yeah, he's pissing off all the people that I'm pissed at. So that's great. And now I can talk like that because the guy in the highest office talks like that. There's people much smarter than me out there that have written a lot about this. And there's a little bit more to it than that. It's not all on him. It's not all on Trump. There's a lot of other factors leading up to even his election that contributed to where we're at right now even. But regardless, the main thing is it changed the tenor of political discussion for everybody in the fire service and outside the fire service. And obviously inside the fire service where it's heavily male and heavily like type A personality where things already have a tendency to like escalate sometimes in discussion or in messing around or, you know. And at the kitchen table, as, as you know, like nothing's off limits. There's a running joke at the station I was at, I'm at now where somebody would just go, oh, we have a line now. If somebody was like, oh, but it's like, no, there's no lines. 
so these conversations would then just got that much much more abrasive or much more like I don't want to say hostile because they weren't necessarily like outwardly hostile but much more aggressive than they would have been or much more much less accepting of an outside opinion and so for me the way that played out or what I tried to do is just like keep my stuff close to my chest because I was not fully aware of how quickly firefighters talk to each other it was a telegraph telephone telefirefighter and like People already had my number coming out of the academy because I had fellow classmates that would give me a hard time about that kind of stuff, especially because the election's going on at the time and all the campaign stuff's happening. I remember getting out in the field at the first station I was at for probation. I hadn't mentioned to anybody in San Antonio that I did spoken word or that I like had a reputation in that and you know had it was working on a book and blah 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 and tour the country, all that crap. I didn't mention any of that to anybody. But I remember walking into my first station and I walk into the kitchen and everybody starts applauding and cheering that's in the day room. And I look up and on the TV is one of my videos. And I was just like, oh, shit, this is this. Yeah, this this was this is where we're starting. Great, cool. <laughs> so you already know about all this. And so, like, I tried to play that stuff close to the chest, which, like, if I had to give advice to my younger self, I'd say just be you from the get go. If they don't like you, they're not going to like you. If they do like you, great. But it often just because of where things were at, especially after the election actually happened, I, st- I remember it was like a shift or two after that. I was working at a working in a spot that I'd normally work in, and there was a guy that wasn't normally in charge that day. And I remember him saying something like, "As on the nose, as like, hey, if anybody on this motor didn't vote for vote for Trump, you can get the hell off." And I remember being like, "I'm on probation. I'm not going to say a thing right now." <laughs> and so there was like some of that sentiment floating around. Credit where credits due, the fire service at its heart, I do think, is very much. I don't care what you look like, where you're from, what your beliefs are. If you can do the job, you can do the job. I do believe that, that 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 is the case. Where people trip over themselves is when they don't get self-reflective and recognize their own like implicit biases. Because I definitely ran into very few. I can think of like three, four people offhand where there was explicit bias, where they were very much like, you don't belong here, blah, 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 like that kind of crap. But that was fine. That was easier to write off than other people where... I knew they knew my views. I knew they knew how different I was because I'm this artsy, bleeding heart, hippy-dippy dude with a bunch of tattoos who writes poetry. You'd kind of see stuff where it's like, it's almost enough to drive you nuts where you're like, I'm, I feel like I'm having to work twice as hard to get half the credit, you know what I mean? But you don't know if you're just playing that trick on yourself because it's just enough to where it's like, oh, I got yelled at for doing something that this guy did, but he didn't get yelled at, but like y'all just geeked out about some country musician or something country fried that I don't, <laughs> that's like foreign to me. And so there was, there was a lot of that. And that's not to complain. That's not to be like, oh, I'm a victim of this and that. It's, it's more just, that just was the situation. And I think, like I said, I do think at its heart, the fire service does believe in that. If you can do the job, cool. But again, it just comes down to people maybe not reflecting on their own biases and recognizing maybe I was treating this guy different. Maybe I wasn't that kind of thing. But ultimately like, where I'm at now, I just feel like it took a while to get into a space, A, to be comfortable enough with myself in that space. I don't know. I basically had to like, I had to wait till my give a fuck was busted as far as what people thought of me outside of like work ethic. Work ethic, if you say I'm lazy, I take that to heart and I'm, I will prove you wrong. But as far as anything else, like I eventually just got to a point where I was comfortable enough with myself to just not try and hide my opinions or I wasn't getting in people's faces. But if people ask me a question, I wouldn't give like a very politician answer. I would be honest with them and hopefully start a good dialogue as opposed to like trying to dunk on each other or something. 
that's a lot early on. And I've said a number of times, just even regards to mental health, like there's a common mistake of people thinking that rookies and recruits come into the job as a blank slate. It's only the experience on the job and within the fire culture that affects them. But we all come in, as I did, as you have explained, you did, came in with a lot in your life already. And then the job adds on top of that. So given that you're prone to depression and you're managing ADHD and then now you're trying to distill down or I guess keep on top of all this external stimuli from the culture and how does that all play out and maybe overthinking it's a lot to take on and that's a very common ADHD thing the overthinking like negativity loop to where you're thinking so much about not screwing up that you then screw up and then you're focused so much on your screw up and beating yourself up about it that you then just continue to spiral out and I I had that happen when I got to rescue luckily probation I was confident enough it was all refresher for me because it was stuff that I knew and could back up that confidence. Kind of like I was saying before too, like I'm now at a a good place where I'm comfortable enough with myself and I've been in long enough to have, at least I hope, I don't know what people say when I'm not in the room, but I would hope a good enough reputation to where all the differences now are just fodder for joking around. You know what I mean? And like in the most wholesome sense of like, I'm going to give you a hard time for this and you're going to be a hard time for that. But we only make fun of each other, screw anybody else who comes at my guy. I think what adds to that too, as far as, oh, they come in, they're a blank slate, and then we build them up. I think what can happen so quickly, and we've talked about this in like peer support team trainings at work and even in CIT training and stuff like that, like what's so weird about first responder culture in general, whether it's cops, firefighters, medics, any of that, is that it is very much and becomes very much an insular community. And I think that because of that, you know, you get this probie that's brand new to it, but it's in a room full of people that all have a ton of experience and are very much inundated in that culture and don't realize, like, can't see the forest from the trees kind of thing, I guess. You, or you don't realize the water that you're swimming in, to use another metaphor. It's like, you don't realize how much of this firefighting bubble that you're in and how much of a culture shock this is for somebody else coming in who has all of their own stuff that they're bringing into the room. What then adds to that is we have a very unique job that has its own set of traumatic experiences and culture and a wacky schedule that is very open, but because it doesn't line up with other people, like what tends to happen is we hang out with our friends that have nine to fives less because, oh, I'm off Tuesday, Wednesday, but they're only free on the weekend, but I'm working all this weekend. And so you end up only hanging out with other firefighters and cops, which then also we'll just run this rabbit hole here too. And there's, there's I guess, some studies on this too. What then happens is like cops, for example, right? They're generally day-to-day dealing with seeing the worst of people over and over and over again, right? But what's easy to forget, and in fire department, we see stuff to where it's not necessarily the worst of humanity, but we see like kind of the, the silliest of it as far as like people acting kind of dumb or doing things that like, you're like either it's one of those where, oh, why would somebody call for this as some guys kind of get in that mindset or like it's people drunk driving and then hurting other people. It's, it's stuff like that where you see that over and over again and you ease, very easily forget that the only other people that you're interacting with in a positive way is those firefighters around you or the other cops around you. And then any people outside of that circle are just the patients that you're seeing who are all negative experiences. Not always all, but like giving you a pretty steady stream of negative experience. And then what results is your view of the outside world is, well, my fellow firefighters and my fellow cops, they're squared away. They know what they're doing. The rest of the world's nuts or the rest of the world's dumb or the rest of the world's bad. And that further creates that, that isolation within that community, which isn't 
isn't healthy. I mean, it's good to be involved in that community, but I tell this to cadets too, both at Oak Hill and the few times I've been down to San Antonio where I'm like, keep your interests outside the fire department and keep your friends outside the fire department, like really cherish those because it will keep you grounded and those friends will have a better sense of when something's off than a community that constantly has stuff off with people. <laughs> Let's just put a pin in that for a second there because you're very often with peer support and mental health. The comment is, well, we should be watching each other because we see each other all the time and recognizing these things when they're off so we can approach each other. But I think it's a really important point you just made there that maybe given the myopic nature maybe of that, like you said, that insular community, maybe we aren't wired or set up to filter and see these differences because they're common amongst us. Or when you do, it's really only going to be the guys that you see like every day, the other people on your shift. And then even when you do see them, I feel like you don't necessarily see them until later or when things are further along. Because a lot of times, too, some guys are able to keep it together at work, and then when they're home, things are off. And if you had those friends at home that aren't in the fire, you, they would see that. Again, they get in, in that, yeah, like you said, that insulated community. And it's just, it's, it, it's tricky. Because then add on all the layers, too, of mental health stigma and everything else that makes it difficult to kind of address these issues within the fire service add on that that isolation it's not great one of the readings that we did for school recently too really kind of broke things down and i really think this is true that like vast majority of mental health issues or emotional suffering or whatever you want to label it comes down to lack of connection i mean we are we're gregarious creatures we're these little pack animals we got mirror neurons the more we learn about neuroscience the more we're like oh we need each other like all this rugged individualism stuff nonsense no man's an island unless there's a superhero named island man then maybe but for real like we all need each other and we we thrive as a group and we're we're hardwired for that and so when those connections get severed or are under stress that then leads to pick something out of the dsm isolation avoidance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. talk to me about the physical effects of your mental health struggle because you mentioned the depression and then how that affected your weight and then how you made your way through that what I think the diagnosis was later, just because you have to diagnose shit for insurance, what the diagnosis was a major depressive disorder because it was just kind of a constant, and then I'd have major depressive episodes within major depression. What's a very commonplace side effect for that is changes in diet. A lot of people eat their feelings, and then other people just kind of stop eating. And I was more so on the stop eating end. And I'm like 5'9", and I think the lightest weight I was like as an adult, gosh, this would have been when I was like really going through, I think I was like... 138, 139. I was nothing, man. I was skinny and I still had hair and it's very big and curly and hobbit-like and it was kind of going all directions, but still thing in, in the middle. I, I didn't look good is what I'm saying. <laughs> you didn't look and feel but, like yourself. No. And I, I was not healthy for a million and one reasons, but like just to give you context, I now weigh like 185 and that's partly because I'm so buff. <laughs> no. Partly of that is working out and active and all that stuff. And then part of that is just having a kid and having a little bit of a, a spare bike tire around the waist a little bit, which is which is fine. I got a tattoo on it, actually, that says dad bod, kind of in that like old English style. Just to, I wanted a dad tattoo, and my buddy had given me that idea, and he never did it, so I did it. Anyway. <laughs> in the fold, you just roll it up to show where it yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you just pop it out like, yep, which has now become a joke at the station anytime I'm eating, which is a lot. I'm a snacker guys will yell dad bot at me and I'll just kind of slap my belly. But you got a handle on that and got more into weights and understand how to use them properly. So you got yourself squared away again. Yeah. Then luckily got myself squared away again 
going into the academy and I was so weirdly enough that and I feel like a goofball talking about her a lot because I don't know if she listens to this podcast but that friend ex-girlfriend whatever actually is a firefighter with with Austin and so I kind of had like a gist of what to expect of the physical end just because we were still kind of friends when she was going through it and on top of that too in the poetry scene there's a friend of mine Susie who is also with Austin Fire Department I think she's an officer now she was a poet in the poetry scene like right when I got there and we had kind of become friends and then she disappeared for a bit because she became a firefighter and so we got to talking about that and so talked to her before I kind of started talked to that previous friend before everything started and kind of got a gist of like what was expected physically and yeah got more into weights got more into understanding how to use them I was doing stairs of the weight vest and doing like plate circuits and and doing all that kind of all that kind of fun stuff I'd already like kind of had a fitness background from having played hockey and running track and cross country but it felt much more mindful when I was doing it to prep for firefighting. Talk to me about how you began to use art as utility and bring in this part of your life and how much crossover has there been and support from the people within the fire service and sort of walk me through that and walk me towards the video. Like I said, I very much prescribed to the philosophy of art as utility. Like if you're making it, it's communication, it's connection, it should be doing something. And a lot of that too comes from like what really got me through college was the music I was listening to at the time and the art that I was making with my friends. We were making movies and TV shows and, and all that kind of stuff. We're having to make movies for class and then we're also making a TV show and then we also make goofy stuff on the side. This is like pre-YouTube, pre-TikTok, but we were basically making that times version of that, which would just be like a minute long goofy thing that we'd send to each other. Knowing that art at a time when I felt alone made me feel less alone. I very much viewed, hey, if I'm going to make something, I want it to connect with somebody you're a unique snowflake just like everybody else like you're unique but everybody's unique but at the same time too it's like there are very universal human experiences very universal human emotions that we can all connect on and if you've ever been truly moved by like a piece of art i don't care whether it's movie tv show some visual art i don't care what it was if you have been moved by it, it connected with you in some way and elicited an emotion from you then then it it's doing its job it's building those connections like we talked about severed connections lead to emotional suffering and so I kind of viewed art as that. On top of that, you also have like that punk rock DIY mindset of like early 2000s. So a lot more like early mid 2000s. So like a lot more of the folk punk thing was kicking off. This is like early against me era, Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains, Bombs of Beating Hearts, all that stuff. So there's that like political end to it too of like, ah, this music will create political change, whatever. The reason I bring up that it was that time is because when that attitude was going on in the 70s and 80s, it was much more like, this music will change the world. And then by the time you get to the 2000s, it's like, this might change stuff, but like we're kind of tongue-in-cheek about that part, but really we're doing this for each other, and that's enough to change things, which, whatever. Eventually, I feel like I'm going to write a book on punk culture and history, <laughs> just because it's... So fascinating. It's, it's fascinating, and it's acted as such a lens for how I look at the world and how I can... Like make sense of different like social things, but whatever. So I had all that background, right? And even the band that I was in in college, some of the first shows that we played were with groups like I had friends in Amnesty International. So like, hey, come play this charity event for us. Hey, I got friends that are friends that are involved in the LGBTQ rights thing. So we're gonna go play a show for you. So it was like 
all of it kind of mixed in together. Like we're making music, but it also helps this cause and also does this. And when it came to even back in high school writing stuff, like I remember writing that one about ADHD and having friends that had it or people that I didn't know that had it that like came up to me being like, thank you for writing this, which is wild. Like if you ever make something, if you ever write something or do something that someone just thanks you for and it's something that you at the time might have done for yourself, like in high school, that's huge. And so Moving forward with that, most of the poetry and stuff that I've been writing was, especially the book that I had come out 2019, which self-plug, it's called Going Down Singing, check it out, write about now publishing, go for it, shameless self-promotion there. Most of that book discusses that low point and just that journey through mental health. And so it's a lot about really looking at, like I mentioned, that, that moment where you have the really jacked up logic of being suicidal and looking at that and having it fall apart in front of you and, and what depression looks and feels like and, and all of that. And just for the record, and this sort of quotes myself here, like depression's not being sad. I just want to clarify that. It's not just being bummed out and sad. It's feeling hollow. It's feeling thin, stretched out, whatever words work for how you felt it. But anybody who's been through it can say it's not just being bummed out. It's you just feel empty point is it's writing a lot about that and then having those experiences connect with people and then eventually and I didn't do this until when I wrote the book in 2019 2018 I think is maybe when I wrote the poem which would have been what like almost 15 years after the fact I finally wrote about being assaulted it's like there's two smaller poems that like sort of address it and there's one very direct poem in the book that really talks about it and really talks about everything that I went through all the emotions around that, how it made me look at authority, all that kind of stuff. And that poem in particular, like poems I'd written about mental health stuff, like I've written ones about being suicidal. I've had people thank me for those, but like that one in particular, I made a video of that one and submitted it to Button Poetry. They had this video contest. It, I didn't win anything, but it got like, it was part of the lineup that they'd release. And Button Poetry has like millions of subscribers. So if your poem gets in front of them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do the rounds, as they say. And I'd already had like one or two on there from competitions that got filmed that had some views. So they picked up the video, they they put it out there. And that that was like the first time I really started getting like outside of a poetry venue, people like, oh, thank you for writing that. That's when I started getting like strangers contacting me being like, thank you so much for writing this. Like this, I know this was your own experience, but it very much captured what I went through. Thank you for putting into words what I wasn't able to put into words, which is very common with trauma. Shoot, I just finished reading The Body Keeps the Score and there's a whole chunk Amazing. of that book on what, Amazing. what's it called. Yeah. Is it le- lexithymia? Is that the word? Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, where you don't have the words for it. And yeah, incredible book. Check it out. Every firefighter should read that book or listen to the Audible. Absolutely, 100%. 100%. I've already, I, fi- I had a firefighter recommend it to me and then I checked it out because he's like, oh, you're into mental health. Check it out. And I blazed through it and I've been recommending it to anybody who will listen to me. Like you were able to put this into words for me and that's great. And so- I'd had that kind of feedback. I'd had that sort of reassurance of like, I'm doing something right if what I'm writing is achieving the goal, which is I want this art to help people, right? Got into the fire service, didn't really write about it for a little while. Wrote a little bit about some stuff at the beginning. And then I wrote this poem like a handful of years ago, which what I've been a firefighter almost eight years now. I think when I originally wrote it, I had, or when it happened, I had not been in very long when that fire happened, I was had only been in like two years in San Antonio for like one or two years. And then obviously Oak Hill prior to that. But then when I finally wrote it, it was like a few years after that. It kind of took me a while to process everything and figure out how to put it into poetry because it was easier to talk about that with like talk about a fire with another firefighter. It's easy. Drop all the terms. You get all that. But to like put the emotions of that event into a space that like firefighters will get it 
and other people that aren't in the fire service will get it. Took me a while to do. And I wanted more perspective on the fire service before I really started writing about it. And so it wasn't until I was in San Antonio for about five years that I wrote that poem. And then I made the video not long ago for it just because I now have enough writing about fire to like compile to a book, which plan is to release it in spring. And it's going to be like a little bit smaller book called a tailboard field notes. And it's just sort of essays and prose and poetry all centered around that and will include the one that's in the video. And so the way that my publisher functions right about now is another poetry video platform. And so they'll put poetry videos out, people watch them, and they just started doing the publishing thing. So I ran a publishing company for a bit, and then I basically just handed over the infrastructure of that to them because I was like, I'm, I just had a kid, I'm in grad school, I'm working full-time, I'm all this stuff. I'm like, I, I'm bad at business. I'm not running this thing well, and you guys can run it well. And like, I know the guys that run right about now. And so made the video, talked to my buddy at the company. I was like, hey man, like, I want y'all to release this if you're down with it. It'd be for our next book because put a video out, video gets views, and then that's advertising for the book. And that's sort of the business model. And he's like, yeah. And he, he watched it and got back to me way quicker than normal. I and mean, was like, more people need to see this. We're going to release it, blah, 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 blah. And we kind of put it out there. And the response, it's been really good and really unexpected. I figured some people would see it. I didn't expect it to do the rounds as quickly as it did because like right about now released it and I was at work for like a 48 so I didn't have a chance to like sit down and type up a thing and hey here's what just came out guys please share like subscribe blah 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 but like I was getting texts like the next the two days after it came out like hey man I just saw your video and it's like people I hadn't talked to in a while and I'm like how the hell did you see this and it was just because my one friend Natchett who made he's another firefighter with San Antonio he made the music for it in the back of the video he had shared it and then Rich Anderson picked it up who I think that's where you saw it if I remember what I was told correctly he shared it he's got a lot of people that share it and it like very quickly and organically spread from there I was getting text messages and Facebook messages all that kind of stuff of people a, thanking me for writing it, and then B, sharing their stories, which is, which is incredible because like the fire service is not a space known for vulnerability. And so I knew I had done something right if the thing that I had made at least made people comfortable enough to enter a space like that, to enter kind of, you know, that, not to get too hippy-dippy about it, but like that sacred space of vulnerability that we can hold for each other as people. That's a beautiful spot for you to pause on because what's culminated for me throughout my career now is realizing that this pushing off or dissociating or buffering or putting up a barrier between you and those you're helping as an excuse as to, well, I need to do that in order to focus on doing my job because if I don't, I won't be able to, to help people effectively. Where I feel putting up that barrier, that block, that not connecting emotionally with the people that you are there to help actually puts you in, in confrontation with those emotions and makes it harder for you to process on the tail end. I have found personally that connecting with patients, victims in the right amounts, in the right way, in the right context, emotionally, especially on very, very difficult scenes has allowed me to turn what is traumatic and but also pull out some great positives out of it, feeling like a very challenging call was also my most rewarding call because I was at my best. So I'm proposing that the most effective firefighters have a, a foot in both worlds of this firefighter up, suck it up, grit, perseverance, get this job done with the empathy, compassion, connection, softness, vulnerability. So how do you feel about that? Because I feel like that's what you're speaking to. 
I really love that. That's I think I heard you kind of briefly talk about that too on it's like an episode or two ago. I forget her name that you interviewed. She's a Wendy Lund. Yes, Wendy. You had briefly talked about that, and I love that for a number of reasons. One, because like there is when I've talked to guys about this, a lot of times they'll bring up it's like, oh well, you know, you can't be. You don't want to be emotional on the scene. You don't want to whatever. And it's like, yeah, 100%. Like there's there's a time and a place for compassion and empathy. And those are different things as well. Like if you're empathetic, you're feeling the emotions that they're feeling, right? Obviously, if somebody's in dis- distress, you don't want to be also in, in duress. But you do want to be compassionate towards them and care enough about them to help them out, right? But it is both. It's I just think, I don't know if it's a cultural thing because I don't think it's just in the fire service. But we we think too much in binary sometimes of just like it's either you are this stoic gritty hardcore emotionless nothing phases me or you're bleeding heart i'm gonna freak out about everything it's like no it's a balance of the two like you are a complete person (laughs) like these are both parts of you that's what's beautiful about you talking about the politics and your experience of being quote unquote on the left but coming into a very maybe on the right industry and service where is yeah i think you can be both simultaneously there's a middle ground somewhere where it's, which is a beautiful place of both at the same time and that's the most effective that's what i was about to say is that that's the most effective and th- this kind of gets into i'm a bit of a geek for taoist stuff i don't know how familiar with like the Tao Te Ching you are but i fantastic it's a, one of my favorite little books and it's itty bitty it takes like 45 minutes to read if you blaze through it it's having both of those aspects like there is strength and softness, softness and strength. It's like you are a complete person and, and, and bringing in all of those aspects and using them effectively and not saying one is strong, one is weak and realizing there's strength in both of those and a time and place for both of those or not even just one or two, but all the different aspects of it, you're going to be much more effective. It kind of, just to throw another poetry quote out there, is this Buddy Wakefield line that always comes to mind. Granted, the context of this line is different, but whatever. But he, he says, I don't care to be good i care to be whole i just feel like that hits the nail right on the head it's not like the way i apply that to like the fire service is it's less about this idea of like oh, i'm gonna be the best biggest tactic bro alpha male whatever whatever guy out there and blah 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 it's it's less about that and it's more about like no, i want to be whole and good at this job it's i don't know if i'm making sense on that part <laughs> the warrior in the garden or the way i've termed it is you're a connected warrior that's the way I've kind of framed it. Absolutely. Coming back to the Taoism thing too, that's there's a whole chunk of the Tao Te Ching that's on that like warrior idea of samurai code. Not to get like too nerdy about this, but shoot, I forget that actor's name, but it's the guy that played the Punisher in uh, the Netflix show. He was being interviewed on Conan O'Brien and they were talking about like these ideas of masculinity and him having kids and the example he wants to set for his kids, both his sons and his daughter. And he talks about that, about how like, you have the samurai code, which is like, yeah, these guys were in their time and place in the world. They were the biggest, roughest, toughest badasses that I'll kill you five times before you hit the ground type thing. But also part of their training and learning was you're going to learn calligraphy. You're going to learn poetry. You're going to learn gardening. You're going to get in touch with all aspects of the world to understand how all of them bring you strength. And that's where then you get into the, the metaphors about water, about go with the flow, because that's stronger than trying to fight the current, you know, all that kind of stuff that boiled down and very simplified when it came to like Bruce Lee and stuff. Not to knock Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's great and talks on a lot of that stuff outside of his movies. Obviously in the movies, it's one-liners all day. Maybe it's because it's a more Eastern approach and we're both in a more Western culture that there 
is that disconnect? I don't know what firefighting's like in that part of the world. Maybe it's the cultural aspects different. I don't know. Although we're at a point where most of the world's sort of westernized, but the main point being is it's it's to really show people that like there is strength and vulnerability. There's it's strength in knowing when you need help and when to ask for help. To be more of that whole as opposed to thinking about being like the best. It's not that man. It's not one dimensional. It's like you are you're a you're a whole ass human being. Like you have all these different aspects. And none of them are inherently strong or weak necessarily. They are just what you make of them. And all of them have their place and, and use, especially in the line of work that we're in to where it's we come into people's lives in the worst day of their life. It's these very vulnerable moments for people that they often didn't choose to be in that vulnerable moment. But we need to come into that knowing that we're sharing that space with them, but then also bringing that, that grit in to get the job done and still help them out. So Wendy talked about it in terms of operationalizing compassion. So do you find, whether you could put it into words before or not, have you found over your career that you are using that compassion or connecting in soft ways and moments with people that you're helping, whether the people, the other firefighters you're with recognize it or not? Have you put that into play in the way you interact with patients that's maybe different than the norm? I don't know if I'd say it's different from the norm. I know that I've become like, at least on my current crew, I think it's partly just because I started going to school for mental health, but then also like on psych runs, like specifically with people that are maybe suicidal, I think that is when it really comes through and when you can kind of see different ways to approach it. Because like, man, I've seen guys handle those situations really ham-handedly and like they're trying to help, but it's not coming from a place of compassion. It's coming very much from the more firefighter end of here's the problem. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to fix it. Kind of back to what I said before, like how many clap pushups do I need to do to fix this situation? And then we'll move on to the next thing. We'll fix that. They approach it with that. And they kind of, a lot of times get into like an advice giving mode or like, Hey, you know, like (laughs) there's one guy who's literally said things like, Hey, some people got it worse than you, you know, cheer up. And it's like, that's not what someone in crisis wants to hear. It's like, I know it's coming from a a well-meaning place. Like they're not doing it to be a dickhead. No, there's no malevolence there at all. But I just feel like if someone hasn't learned to connect with themselves personally on a deep level, there's no way they can connect with other people personally. 100%. And that's, that's when it comes up. Like, so in situations where I've used it to where like, a lot of times it's just meeting the person where they're at, sitting down next to them or just coming in and less of running through your OPQRST and your sample questions and all that stuff and more of like, hey, how's, how's it going? What's your name again? Well, my name's Kevin, that kind of thing. And really meeting them where they're at and just, you don't even need to talk about what's going on, but just starting that conversation, making them more comfortable, making them feel safe to then. And I've had that happen on, one call comes to mind like in particular, I just remember it because it was the day after I had my interview to get into Northwestern. And I was like kind of riding a high of like, I think I did well. I think I can do this. We had a call of, it was a psych call for someone that was suicidal. And I ended up just talking to her for a while and eventually getting her to kind of come back down from dysregulation to being regulated again and eventually being like, yeah, I, I need I need to go. Like I need to go get help. And I was like, cool. Well, I was like, the cops are here. They're going to ED you and all that stuff. And went super smooth. And it was just all about being a person in that moment, not being a guy in a uniform with a bunch of tools to fix stuff. It was just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> Like things don't seem to be going well for you. I I feel like people think that you have to have gone through something like that to understand it. And don't get me wrong, going through that gives you an intimate understanding of depression or suicide or or whatever, whatever the, the instance is. But in those moments when you're talking to people that are in distress, if you tell them, oh, I know what you've been going through, that's not gonna land well. 
and I've, I've made enough patient contacts to see that not land well because they, their mindset is you don't know what I've been through. So you don't even need to bring up your own crap in the conversation. You don't even need to have gone through it. You just need to let them know that you're giving them a space to listen and to be a compassionate human and to, I'm here to help. I don't know how to help yet, but maybe if you tell me what's going on, I can figure something out. And like, that's all that people need. And it, I know that sounds super simple and it is in a way, but it's definitely easier said than done because you really have to fight our tendency as first responders to, I got to get in there and fix this. We don't always have to have tools in our hands. Sometimes our tools are in our minds and in our hearts, right? And just, but just like any other tool in your skill, you need to start using them and you're probably going to fuck it up a few times, like until you rep it out and then you just get better at it. But I think people are afraid to delve into trying to operationalize these emotional it's emotional maturity, right? And I'm operationalize these emotional skills and tools that they've learned about or heard about or felt themselves and just haven't been given permission to use and do it in a clunky kind of imperfect way. But as long as you're leading with the intent of wanting to help people, I think you're always going to land properly. I like what you said there too about not giving permission to use because I think within the firefighting culture, because so much of it is gritty, like I said, tactabro, alpha male, whatever, goofy term you want to throw on it of this kind of tough veneer. Uh, I, I think you add that cultural aspect on there, you add just the way longer conversation about masculinity in our own culture and, and expectations for men and, and things like that. Even growing up, a lot of young boys are not allowed to develop that maturity at a young age. I mean, there's studies that even show that like, I forget what the age is, but it's like boys are told by their parents to not cry about stuff way way earlier than than girls are and and like essentially the only emotions that we get to know well are like and that, that are acceptable is like anger like anger is okay for men to express only other time you can maybe be emotional is on a stage like i mean like look at joe cocker like that guy goes nuts when he sings on stage but it's like oh he's praised for it but if some a dude was that vulnerable and emotional in person like no it's not not happening or at a funeral during a eulogy or something it's like very small moments of time where we're allowed to have, have a window into that exactly was it <laughs> ron swanson thing uh men are only allowed to cry like when bagpipes are played at a funeral and like one, it's like one other thing i forget what it was but it's like <laughs> yeah it's it's as much of a joke that is in that that show it's no, that's that's real and it's to our detriment we then are kind of behind most of us are behind the curve as far as learning that emotional maturity which then translates to our job to these moments like this to, to helping people and generally in life making connections with other people like by the numbers most men the only person that they're really vulnerable with and have a deep emotional level with, if at all, is their partner, whether it's their their wife, spouse, girlfriend, whatever. And then so a lot of times it's like 50% of men whose marriage end in divorce end up completely isolated because they don't have those super deep emotional connections with other men. That's not good. That's not good, especially thinking in terms of firefighting because like divorce is pretty high in our industry <laughs> and going back to those disconnections and leading to other other stressors and stuff and so like gosh yeah not only is it like doing the work understanding your emotions self-reflecting understanding how you as the tool not calling you a tool but you as the tool for helping others operates and knowing your own like i said even knowing your own implicit biases knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing all of that stuff, how you respond to different things, knowing why your brain does the things you do, what your trauma has maybe led to this, or even if you don't, you're lucky enough to somehow 
be a unicorn and not have trauma in your, <laughs> in your past. Understanding how you work then can be applied to not only helping others in that moment, but then just in your own personal life, having those, allowing yourself to have those deeper connections with other people and which then makes you that much more resilient when it comes time to dealing with a traumatic episode. For me, it's, I lucked out to where I had had an emotional outlet. Writing and poetry especially is, is generally speaking such a mirror on yourself all the time. It's all self-reflection. It's all understanding yourself and how to put all of this crap into words to then explain to other people. And in order to explain to other people, I got to understand it. And so I'm lucky enough to have that and also going to a therapist because writing is great therapy, but no therapy beats therapy. Like let's, let's get that out of the way. There needs to be more of an emphasis, not only in the industry, but just society as a whole, just people in general, especially us dudes, not to put it all on us, but we got some learning to do partly because of stupid expectations about us not being emotional, even though we're, human and full of emotion <laughs> i contain multitudes but, but yeah so so you have a little boy so how are you then given who you are in these two parts in this yin yang as you see your life how do you see yourself imparting that to him how would you like to see him grow up and be able to marry both of those pieces into who he is yeah, so I guess what I'm looking for is not that you have the answer about how to raise a boy in this world, in this culture, and this new, less binary, less dualistic approach to being human or being a man, but in your own imperfect way, maybe how do you see going forward with it? You kind of just touched on it in the way that you phrased that. I think you kind of hit it on the head there when you said being a good human or, or being a good man. And I, I don't know, I'll give credit to my parents for a lot of this and probably Mr. Rogers for some of it <laughs> and also like having a sister, but like even growing up and it could have been the time that we grew up too. It's, it, there was less, I mean, as much as like the toy market in the nineties was like wildly boys do this and girls do this. I still feel like I, I grew up in an environment where like the emphasis was less on good man, good woman and more on like, just be a good person. And like, it's the same on both ends. And then like later on in life, like when I first moved to Austin, a friend of mine, incredible poet named uh, Lacey Roop, she wrote this poem where they talk of being a good human. They wrote this poem and essentially because, you know, they don't present. She's a uh, lesbian, kind of gender non-conforming. And it was a running joke where at bars, guys would be like, oh, are you a dude or are you a dyke? And she wrote a poem about that, like being asked that. And her answer was always like, oh, a little bit of both and blah, blah, blah. Or why don't you call your girlfriend because she was with me last night or like jokes and stuff in there. But the poem ultimately ends with like essentially, and it's just stuck with me. It's a really great piece of just ending with like, just worry about being a good human. Like I don't like who cares about any of this stuff. Just be good and just focus on that and not hurting other people and, and doing good and, and, and that kind of thing. And I, I'm going to do my best to try and bring that into it. I mean, he'll obviously have for as <laughs> my wife and I joke about this a lot as like non-traditional as both of us are in so many ways as far as like we're both two punk rock kids and both of us are all tatted up i mean i don't know you saw in the video i got tattoos starting from my fingers all the way up both arms my wife is very much the same she's got piercings all that kind of stuff and we when we go to shows we got we got our punk rock get-ups as non-traditional as we are in those just by happenstance we ended up in very traditional roles to where it's like well i've kind of become the breadwinner because the job i have makes more money than she does and she still works but less and she's back at home more so he'll have like these weirdly sort of traditional 
so to speak, roles. So I'll have that example. But like the biggest thing I think I want to impart on him is like, you are who you are. Like the aspects that you have of yourself, like I mentioned, all of it is different tools in the toolbox. All of it is different aspects that are not necessarily good or bad or strong or weak. And they have their places and all this. And to really just know how you fit into the grander scheme of things, know how you can be a good whole person. I think I mentioned this in one of my answers. I know I mentioned Liz Plank's book offhand, which for the love of men is I've been recommending that book to everybody. I don't know if you've read it or not. It touches on a lot about a lot of the things I've been talking about in there. It talks about how like, and I didn't really know this just because my dad helped out around the house and stuff, but like a lot of dudes and I didn't run in this into this until I got in the fire service. A lot of guys are like not about doing household chores in their own homes. They see themselves in that traditional, like I go to work, I come home, I'll hang out with the kids and the wife does the dishes and makes the whatever. And it's like, I hope that Liam is my son's name. I hope that he sees that like, no, like this house is a community. No work is designated to this person or that person. It's if it needs to get done, it needs to get done. Which is strange for guys to still hold on to that view outside of the fire hall because in the fire hall, majority for the longest time masculine or male, right? And male dominated and all of it had to be done by the men. You're capable of doing it. It's like, I've seen you wash a toilet. I've washed a <laughs> toilet with you. Like, I know you can do that. I know you can cook. Some of y'all are amazing cooks. Yeah. Let's just segue off of that then. Maybe let's finish off on, uh, like we talked just briefly there, about what your hopes are for your, your boy. But if you had a magic wand or you had to just talk about your hope for the fire service, if you could create the fire service of the future that you'd love to see maybe with more of this integrated, what would it look like? I think it kind of goes back to what I said and to what I guess you ultimately talked about with with Wendy as well as operationalizing compassion, operationalizing those those people skills, which I know in San Antonio we're doing a lot of that. Well, I say a lot of it, but it's as much as we can because it's still sort of a new thing with with CIT training, which is crisis intervention training. And it's now become a part of the academy. Actually, the cadets go through and you teach them. Essentially, you're just teaching them basic listening skills and like a set of questions to ask with the purpose being like identifying when it's an emergency detention, but also like when I'm down there that like one time I went and got to actually help out and teach because I'm still new to the, that teaching that part. I really emphasize like this will help you in psych runs and in not psych runs. Like this will help you connect with the person and get more information from them. Patients sometimes aren't totally forthcoming with you, even with their medical stuff. So like if you can make a connection with them, it's helpful in that way. And so what's cool, San Antonio's doing that, which is great. And there's obviously, there's been a big push of, of, we did a whole mental health stand down week, which is cool. And there's a lot of resources that we have, but culturally at large, like I said, operationalizing that compassion, I think is huge. That's a huge part of it. And that's a really great way that you phrased it. But also just, like I said, and a lot of this does come down to kind of breaking from that traditional kind of masculinity of it being acceptable for men to kind of not be as emotionally self-reflective or as emotionally mature, kind of as you said, and really having the fire service have that aspect of it and having people within the fire service, men, women, whatever, see that like, hey, understanding this tool, this body, this mind, this heart, this thing that I bring into the room to help people, understanding that will ultimately make me more effective at work and make me more whole outside of work. And like I said, I feel like doing that little bit of like, hey, really reflect on your emotions and that kind of thing would not only make people more self-reflective and see their own implicit biases, which 
cause issues in the firehouse outside the firehouse. It would make people see their own trip ups with trauma and things like that, which again leads to problems in the firehouse and outside the firehouse. And it sounds very utopian, but maybe it'll fix everything. I don't think it will. I mean, as we said, things are more complicated than that. But I think that one step of making emotional maturity the norm, I think it would, man, that would do wonders. Not everybody's got to write poetry. You don't got to write poetry, but you got to like understand how your brain and your heart work and know what you want out of life and know what you bring to it. And maybe know what art you can bring forward that has utility. The word art can be so flexible also. Like there is art in making a meal for somebody and expressing your love 100%. in that way. And there's there's art in in like everything. There's art in in a lot of the skills that we use in firefighting and and expressing that and using it to help others is, is huge. Like I said, it doesn't have to be poetry, doesn't have to be painting, doesn't have to be any of that stuff. If you're still in a place where you're uncomfortable with the hippy dippy stuff, like it doesn't have to be that. It can be whatever it is that you express yourself through that you move through the world in. Yeah, and we're always promoting that firefighters do hard things, so why can't we do this if it's a hard thing? Yeah, like, holy crap. Like, I, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because so many of the – I'm going to give this example, and if this guy hears it, I don't care. I'm not going to say his name or his rank or whatever. But there is a dude in – I won't even say what department because I've been at a few. There is a dude in a fire department out there who refuses to drink strawberry milkshakes because they're pink and because pink is gay. And somehow for him, that equates to strength and manliness. But to me, first off, how are you going to deprive yourself of one of the many simple joys in life, such as a strawberry milkshake, which are objectively fantastic? I'm more the chocolate milkshake guy myself, but strawberry is great. It's delicious. I don't care what color it is. It's good. How are you going to deprive yourself of that? On top of that, how are you going to purport that to be a position of strength and manliness when ultimately that's a decision made out of fear? That's a decision being made out of, I am afraid that people will think I'm feminine or gay or whatever I equate to weakness. And it's like, dude, that is, to me, that's fear-based. That's a fear-based decision, which is like ultimately the opposite of what you want to portray yourself as this man with no fear, which whatever. There is a dude in a fire department, now retired, that would not eat bananas or sausages or anything oh God, that that's... shares the shape <laughs> Because it's gay. <laughs> so just the, what poor, you just told me. What right? a poor guy. Like, man, you're missing out on so many good things. Right. It just, just resonated with me when you said that. And I remember hearing about this and being like, oh, you're, you're screwing with me. And someone's like, no, he's serious. I was like, what? Dude was dead serious. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, so the way I've phrased it recently is it's very common to hear guys say, I fight what you fear when they're speaking to the public, right? But what firefighters don't want to do is fight what they personally fear, which is vulnerability. And, and when people say, I don't want to appear weak, that's fear. It's so many things that firefighters are afraid of. And I guess my challenge is to them is that if you're so fucking tough, why can't you face these fears and get over them? Be the hero in your own story. Man up and cry about it already. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah but like it's you hit the nail right on the head it's we're all about putting in the work and doing the this and doing the tough stuff i want to do the tough training and all the tough 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 but it's like okay cool uh sort out your feelings no no that's it's like come on like that's that's the stuff that i, I know firefighters are weird in that like <laughs> like run into a burning building is pretty easy for a lot of us it's how do you do that i don't know because i know how to put it out and it's kind of rad it's fun but like 
do something that's actually hard, like sort out your emotions, get in touch with, like I said, your own thoughts and thought process and emotional reasoning and all that, like do that. That's the tough work. That's really facing what you fear and being honest with yourself about what are your weaknesses and, but then recontextualizing those weaknesses. And like the fact that vulnerability is seen as a weakness is insane to me because like I said, maybe it's the Taoist in me or whatever, but it's like, no, like flexibility is strong. Like if you can, if you're not rigid and, and bucking the flow of things, that's actually stronger than trying to push against it and not drinking strawberry milkshakes. Come on, people. <laughs> well, that's why the engineer bridges to have movement or towers, right? High rise buildings, right? They sway, they have some flex to them because they know they can't build them as rigid or they'll fall apart, right? I think you really touched on a great point there with the house fire, but I think people are comfortable with going into the house fire because they've spent time thinking about it, talking about it, training on it. And they understand it, so then all of a sudden it's not hard anymore. And I'm, I guess what I'm proposing is this other side of things is exactly the same thing. If you would just dive into it, learn about it, learn the skills associated with it, and put it into practice, you wouldn't be so afraid about it. That would be easy too. What's so interesting to me too is when in times when I have, I guess you could call it like psychoeducation or whatever, using terms from school because I'm smart, I guess. <laughs> I guess what they term psychoeducation, which is where in therapy or helping people sort out stuff, you sort of you break down the nuts and bolts like, hey, here's what's going on in your brain. Like what I've noticed is with firefighters, with primarily with more so with men, is that when you talk to them about this kind of stuff, if you break it down in that way, in the way that you'd break down something like fire science, like you spend time in a flashover chamber. Oh, we know how fire works. This is what it's doing. So when you go in there, oh, I know what this, I know what signs to look for, blah, 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 blah. If you break down mental health in that way and you explain like, hey, so here's your amygdala, right? Your amygdala is doing this and that's why you feel this way. And it's a survival mechanism, but it's a little lot of whack. When you break down the nuts and bolts of it, like I said, those disrupted connections and why that causes distress and how to heal those things. And you explain like, because a lot of people I feel like push against psychology because they feel like it's too deterministic. Like because of this, I'm always going to be like that. It's like, no, no, there's this thing called a, a neuroplasticity. It's great. You know, it should fill you with hope because your brain can't fix itself. And we've seen it happen. But when you break all that stuff down and explain it in that way, that so much of the material that we're exposed to is explained to us in a very scientific, listed out way, they not only accept it that more, but then are able to apply it that much more to their own stuff or see things like, instead of being like, oh, and your feelings and blah, 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 which is fine if you want to talk about it like that, and I can and, and do sometimes, but you, if you talk about it like, hey, so this experience you had, it's on a shelf right here. And right now, because we haven't dealt with it a lot, it's on the shelf that's too high. So taking it out and looking at it is a little more difficult. So we're going to try and move it down. And then we can take and look at it and be like, oh, I don't know. That's just the first example that came to my head. But if you explain it in that way, in this not, you explain it in a way that is language that not only appeals to them, but for firefighters, for dudes, is much more parsed out the same way we'd explain something like fire science. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that's the A route to go. If anything, it would be the prologue to getting them into the story of viewing it in more in-depth ways. That's where I was getting with that before I spun out and forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a tendency to do. But it's possible. It is possible for this change to happen. And I do think it is, I think culturally, generally speaking, like collectively, and it could be because the internet's allowing us to be around each other more and even... COVID kind of showed this too, because even if you're the type that was like, oh, pandemic, conspiracy theory, this and that, you have to acknowledge the fact that COVID happened and had a major effect on everybody and was like kind of a dicey period, especially at the beginning where 
even the guys that are like you're very type A's, like I'm sure about everything I say type dude, like, oh, it'll be fine. Even those guys were worried because they ultimately didn't know and just weren't admitting it at the time. So it was like collectively all of us went through something where we were disconnected from each other, where things were uncertain. And I feel like that plus already a general societal push towards focusing on mental health has got us in this weird cultural moment. I don't want to call it a reckoning because that sounds like very hyperbolic, but like we're definitely aware of and hell to bring it back to uh, body keeps the score. We're a much more trauma informed society. Like we're aware of how this stuff works and we're looking at it more. And even though I wish we were further ahead than we are, I think we're on that right track of looking at this stuff and having these conversations. And, and like, like you said, figuring out whether it's operationalizing it, whether it's translating it to other people to get on board or not even get on board, but just understand and see how this stuff works. I think generally speaking, we're moving towards that both just as a society and as a whole and then the fire service, which 400 years of tradition unimpeded by progress, it's going to go kicking and screaming, but it will change. And you're seeing that change inside the fire service even now. Yeah. And even if it doesn't fully change to where we would hope it would go, I guess all we can do is in our imperfect way, try and model it as best as possible and invite people and give ourselves and them permission to try it out. That's one of those two, whenever I get too bogged down with trying to save the world, <laughs> you know, you get bogged down with political conversations or just like these bigger ideas and these bigger things that you want to solve and see change. It, what it comes back down to is just, and again, this kind of ties back into Taoism that which very, I'm not a Taoist by any means, like strictly, I just really like that Tao Te Ching. Just, it gives that perspective of like, you can do what you can do and what you do will, because you are part of the world around you, it will have effects on the world around you. And if all that I am able to do is just influence just the people around me to maybe start, if not changing where their, their needle is at, widening their gauge maybe, if that's all that I can do, that's huge. Because then it has that ripple effect. Have you read 365 Daily Meditations? I have not. I've heard that title before. Okay. I've that recommended one, that to a lot of people, and it has like a, a poem. This is perfect for you, as it was perfect for me. It's a poem in the very beginning, and, it, and there's obviously 365 different topics like beauty and death and whatever. And then you go through each day, and it's just a simple one-page thing, obviously centered around Taoism. So I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. I did actually, because... A teacher at school brought it up to me in like response to one of my papers. And then because I heard it in that episode with Wendy, I just finished reading two days ago, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, yes. which is Oof. pretty fantastic. Oof. There's parts of it where I'm like, this almost feels self-helpy, but I dig it still. The overall message is incredible. It's another must read for sure. That's that's on my list. It's it's basically been me being like, read Liz Plank, read, read Man's Search for Meaning, read uh, Body Keeps the Score. It's like those three books I've been yelling about the last like couple months. Nice, nice. I feel like we're going to have a part two down the road, you and me. We've had a great time doing this. I would love that. That'd be great. I love okay. just shooting the shit. Yes. <laughs> so how can people reach you if they want to reach out to you and connect? I'm probably going to be changing this soon because I've been getting a lot of, having gone from a much more public forward-facing position of being a touring poet when I was like actively promoting myself to having a kid and me being like, well, there's pictures of my kid on my Instagram. I'm making it private. I'm probably going to swap that out and just have a separate one for my kid and then keep the poetry one up. But if on Instagram is the main one I'm active on, if you just look for at Kevin W. Burke, K-E-V-I-N-W-B-U-R-K-E, 
you can find me on there. That's a good way to send me messages. I think that's how you got in contact with me. But I'm most active on there as far as shows and stuff coming up. I haven't done shows in a bit because of pandemic, but I'm planning on doing that, obviously, with another book coming out. If you just look up right about now, poetry, you could find my book and other books from the same press. It's fantastic. And then uh, YouTube, just <laughs> type in Kevin Burke and poetry and you'll find a bunch of my stuff. If you just type Kevin Burke, you get a famous Irish fiddler. Although I've started popping up when you just search for him. So now we're like in a dead heat. Which nice. like He has no idea, but like that's my rival right there. You're coming for him. <laughs> but yeah, that's, those are probably the two best places to get a hold of me is Instagram and up on YouTube. I, I don't do Facebook as much anymore. And I think I had a Twitter account like 15 years ago and I haven't touched <laughs> it since. Yeah, and same. Twitter Twitter seems to be on fire and crashing into the mountainside right now. So it's I'm probably not going to get on there anytime soon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I really appreciate your perspective and your time today. Absolutely, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for this, dude. This has been a really cool conversation. 